and welcome back to the Napoleonicist. We're continuing in a similar kind of vein to the last episode. I was looking at an aspect of an army which had largely been neglected. This time we're going to be looking at multiple armies, multiple nations, and topics that have certainly been neglected on this podcast, but to an extent have been neglected in other aspects of the, the kind of the scholarship of this period. I'm joined by three contributors to a fantastic volume that came out from Hellion & Co. Uh, just last year. It was entitled Armies and Enemies of Napoleon, and it was the Proceedings of the 2021 Conference uh, that Hellion do every year um, for their From Reason to Revolution series. If you haven't already stumbled across Hellion, go check out their website. It's hellion.co.uk, very easy to remember, H-E-L-I-O-N. And they're really making a name for themselves in taking high quality research and publishing it at a price that means people can actually afford to buy it rather than some of these things that you sometimes see where people produce the most fascinating studies, but then there's a price tag that's attached to them that runs to triple figures and hardly anybody ever buys a copy. That's, Hellion, that's not Hellion's way. They do the complete opposite. Take the decent research and make it affordable. And they've got this really burgeoning series building. I've been very fortunate to contribute um, firstly to one um, edited collection and, and then bring out one myself just last year. Details of that in one of the previous episodes. Uh, but today we're going to focus on this brilliant new volume, Armies and Enemies of Napoleon. And I'm delighted to be joined by three lovely people, but also hugely respected scholars of this period. We have Professor Alexander Mika Baridze. Alex is becoming kind of a, a regular contributor to this show um, and I make no apologies for it because he's brilliant. Um, he's the Ruth Herring Knoll Endowed Chair at Louisiana State Shreveport. He's got a brilliant uh, biography incoming soon on Kutuzov which we're going to sit down and we're going to have a detailed discussion about that for an episode because boy is that needed. Um, Alex great to have you on the the show again. Welcome back. How are you Thank doing? Thank you so much for your kind invitation. It, it's always a joy to see you and I want to again extend my congratulations on uh, finishing your doctorate. Oh that's, that's very kind. Thank you. Um, still getting used to it. Uh, shaving is sometimes a challenge when you kind of realize that you're staring back at a doctor and it's you who is the doctor. Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll move <laughs> swiftly on from my shaving accidents. We're also joined by Dr. Kenton White, who's a lecturer at the University of Reading. He's a specialist on 19th and 20th century military history with a particular interest in the French armies during this period. Got a whole host of publications. Do go and check out his profile on the University of Reading website. Kenton, we were just discussing before we kind of came on air as it were, we haven't seen each other in about five years. I was literally starting my PhD when we met properly. I didn't have half as much grey hair back then <laughs> as I do now. How are you doing? Yeah, very, very well. Thank you for inviting me on, onto the programme. Uh, yeah, I uh, can't remember how long ago it, it was that we spoke, but uh, too long, I think, is the best way of describing it. Well, that's very kind of you. Um, I think others would probably say not long enough, but yeah. we'll, we'll, well, we'll that to one. Say, one Dr. White to another, you know, it's always good. Dr. White stick together. Absolutely. Quite rightly so. Um, and last, but by no means least, we are joined by Philip Ball. Philip has also contributed to the, the Hellion kind of pantheon. Shall we, shall we call it that? The Hellion pantheon. Um, with a 
with a, a volume called Neither Up Nor Down, which is on the British Army and the Flanders campaign, which was great to see come out. I've got to say, Phil, great to see you. Um, I'm normally used to you under a different name because you tweet under at Hindustan, which uh, I, I find quite an amusing thing because it, it, it's just funny the way that you kind of played with the, the terminology there. How are you doing? It's great to see you. I'm fine, thank you, and thank you for inviting me. I mean, I'm in somewhat esteemed company here, aren't I? I'm sort of like, uh, I'm the also-ran, but, uh, you know, the support act. <laughs> far, far from it. I mean, that's basically what I think every time I put one of these episodes together, that I am the sort of the minnow amongst the... Um, I'm reluctant was... to call you whales or sharks because, <laughs> you know, both have rude connotations, but you, you yeah, get the kind yeah. of analogy that I'm going for here. <laughs> Right, to business then. Um, we're going to keep this fairly simple in terms of format. I've got three guests. They're each going to tell us a little bit about their research. There are going to be no spoilers from me. They're going to have between five and ten minutes to just give you a flavour of what they've been looking at, what they've used to come to their conclusions, some of the, the discoveries that they've drawn in the process. But they're not going to go to town on it because these are little teasers to encourage you to go and buy the book, which is fundamentally what I'm hoping you're all going to do off the back of this episode. We've got lots of different perspectives to, to look at at the end of each of those pitches, if you will, on each of these chapters that makes up uh, part of this volume. We're gonna have a few questions from the rest of the, the contributors and just have a little bit of a chat about different perspectives and different thoughts. It's gonna be a really thought provoking session, I think. Um, and I've been looking forward to this for a little while. I think we're gonna go with Kenton first, Dr. White. From Dr. White. Yes, Dr. White. Do lead on. Okay, um, my chapter is about the French method of warfare in the peninsula. And it really uh, developed from my research for my first book, funnily enough, also with Hellion, called The Key to Lisbon, which was about the 1810 campaign uh, in Portugal. And it really developed a genesis of about 20 years um, from some basic research and, and a lack of understanding of that campaign, especially from the Portuguese perspective, but also incredibly from the French. There were only one or two books that really dealt with it in any detail and also, dare I say, with any accuracy. Um, I'll probably get shot down for that one and deservedly so, but uh, the, the French method of, of warfare has been, I think, deeply misunderstood, um, but also given who was fighting, who was commanding, sorry, on the French side, uh, some of the best marshals, I think they display a distinct lack of uh, flexibility, uh, a lack of development of doctrine and tactics to counter the, the allies and, and to take advantage where advantage was uh, an opportunity, really to drive home uh, on the battlefield and in the campaigns more broadly, their numerical and uh, numerical advantage and, uh, and, and just the, the idea of utilising the forces that had dominated the rest of Europe. Um, one part of it 
really focuses on the French method of, of fighting. And, and it's still common idea that the French fought in column all the time in every battle against the allies, whoever they were. And so part of it was one of my little um, crusades almost to, to try and break down this, this idea of, of uh, the stereotypical view of the, the French method of battle fighting. Um, but also just to engage with the, the difficulties of logistics and command and control in an area which wasn't under the control of the French. So all of the aspects of, of how you fight a war from grand strategy right down to the tiniest of battle tactics. Um, but to try and fit that into 10,000 words or thereabouts is very difficult. So I'm sure I've missed a lot out, but uh, there's, there's opportunity for more research and opportunity for more publications. So um, I hope that sums up the chapter for you. I mean, the first thing I'm gonna say is book, please. Um, maybe <laughs> even multiple volumes um, because, wow, great point to start with. Uh, and, and so many questions that spiral off of that. I'm really liking this kind of myth bust sense of, mm. of dealing with, it's almost as though folks have this belief that the French were essentially thick when it came to um, how they approached fighting yeah. during this period and, and had no concept of things like loss of men, attrition, etc., and were prepared yeah. to just blindly employ the same tactics. Um, in fact, we were, I, we've got a, an episode incoming fairly soon about myth-busting, and I think it's one of the, the contenders, frankly, for one of the most irritating myths of this period, this yeah. the French only use column kind of scenario, because it just, it just doesn't work. Um, so I, I'm, gr I'm really glad that you're, you're looking into, into that aspect. Um, the, the obvious question to ask about this, is Messina right as sort of the person at the top and mm. it is part of the problem for the French, for, I'm thinking very specifically here, 1810, 1811, Army of Portugal. Um, it is part of the problem that Messina's just, his, his head doesn't appear to be in the game. Um, he seems to be, dare I say it, past his best. Whichever way you look at it, what you see from Messina, 1810, 1811, is not what you see in the 1790s by any stretch of the imagination. Is it that he's just, he's, he's burnt out in some respect or are there other issues that, well, inevitably there will be other issues, but is part of this kind of wrong person at the top that's, well, that's affecting this? Or is equally the fact that there's this inclination to refer back to Napoleon, who's yeah. sitting, you know, however many hundreds of miles away in Paris, also kind of creating this delay? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of both of those things involved, but we mustn't forget that Massena had been involved in the campaign of 1809 uh, against the Austrians and had fought very, very well. And there's, the, there's a great myth that's built up about um, him not being at his best in the 1810 campaign, but he was a very loyal um, 
marshal and he did what Napoleon told him to do. But we also have the myth of British invincibility when actually Wellington made mistakes in those campaigns, just not as many as the French did. And we tend to forget that strategy is very often just being that tiny bit better or bit luckier uh, than your opponent. So Wellington was not the uh, infallible general that everybody holds him up to be. Not everybody, sorry, it's an overstatement. Many hold him up to be. Um, and Massena had some very, very difficult subordinates, most notably Ney, and some difficult uh, co-commanders. So Salt should have been supporting him. He didn't care. So you put someone in that position and to actually get to the outlying villages around Lisbon, I think was a, a significant achievement by Massena. Uh, but the logistics meant that there was no way the French army could be maintained in, in Portugal. And we mustn't forget that the British and Portuguese devastated the country. And it took decades for the Portuguese to recover. And that's another aspect of the campaigns of the peninsula that, that we tend to gloss over. Indeed. Uh, two very important points here. We're going to come back to talk about the devastation in just a second. Um, sure. But you make a really good point, actually, um, about Wellingtonian, shall we call them, mistakes. Um, what's, <laughs> yes. what's the point where Wellington comes the closest to an absolute catastrophe for his army on the open battlefield? For me, yes, there are, sure, there are um, minor actions where he receives setbacks let's put that to one side for a moment because they don't catastrophically um, change the outcomes of the, the, the viability of his army. The point at mm. which he nearly loses his army is Fuente Don Euro, 1811. Yeah. And, that, and that's Massena um, yes. sort of spotting the overextension of Wellington's right and pouncing upon that. And then, you know, sort of this, you've got two debates here, haven't you? To what extent is it Wellington pulling his men back just in time and to what extent is it a case that the French didn't pursue that advantage that they had quite as vigorously as they might have done um, I guess first of all what's your kind of stance on that discussion there well spoiler on working on a book on exactly that battle nice speak uh, but my my view of that is that um, Massena was unlucky Bessier needed shooting for uh, not following his commander's instructions, battlefield commander's instructions. But Wellington nearly lost his army after Basako the previous year, which very few people recognize. Um, the withdrawal from Basako was rushed. It wasn't the slow, gradual, planned withdrawal that has often been talked about. It was rushed and you can read that in the contemporary accounts. However, 
the French were not in a position to exploit that. And I think again and again, we see this uh, problem that the French have of exploiting the mistakes that are made by their enemy in the peninsula. And that's a major weakness for them. And, and again, at Fuente. Can I go back to what you were saying as well about um, the devastation? Because sure. this is, there's a big moral argument about this, which is, is very, obviously it's, it's a very sore point for lots of people, um, whether it's Portuguese, British or French. Um, there's, a, there's a morality decision that has to be made um, in, in well, I, is there a, a moral decision to be made in war? Uh, to what uh, extent uh, can can you make moral decisions in war? Or do you yeah. purely go on the basis of strategic necessity? Um, Wellington certainly takes the strategic necessity line. Um, that's kind of what <laughs> we've come to expect of Wellington, I, I think. Um, but just, I'm interested in what your thoughts are on that. And then I think we might kind of open that up to others in the room. You know, what was... Was that the right call, in your opinion? Was that quite kind of typical of the period? Uh, I don't know whether it was typical of the period. Uh, uh, the Russians did it. I know that the, the idea of scorched earth. But if, if your objective is to stop the French from taking Lisbon, they can take the rest of Portugal. It doesn't matter. The British can keep supplying Lisbon. Uh, as long as the ships can get in and out of the harbour. So the rest of Portugal logically does not matter. And as long as the British are prepared to pour money into this and, and food uh, and men and other supplies, the rest of Portugal does not matter. Morally, I don't think that, I don't think morally uh, the idea matters uh, because the goal is to save Portugal. To save Portugal, you save Lisbon. Doesn't matter about the royal family because they're in Brazil. Um, so you can do what you like. The idea of scorched earth wasn't as successful again as the histories make it. Uh, and the French were able to survive for much longer than was anticipated because it wasn't employed completely. But we do have circumstances of Portuguese um, peasants starving to death. I personally don't believe that there's, you have to come in with a, a moral consideration if, if, your only thought is the defeat of the French. Any method available to you then becomes viable. And if that means taking the food away from your own people while they're being brought back to Lisbon, then so be it. Better, as some thought at the time, to, to die rather than live under the French hill. So it's a tough one, morally. And I try to not get involved in the moral discussions if I can possibly avoid it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bit of a, a stinker of a question to throw out mm. there. I think it is an important one for all that we do, Lord Wellington. And certainly I have my views on, on this issue. Um, this is one of those moments where you have to sort of sit back and think, hmm, 
was this the right call you know mm. what is the lesser of of the evils in in this scenario which mm. is a, a difficult decision to to make alex can i bring you in just on, on this question particularly with your perspectives with your expertise on, on russian history oh yes thank you uh, you know i really enjoyed your um, talk uh, especially since uh, my major professor uh, was Dr. Uh, Donald D. Holward who wrote yeah. on Dubusako and who, you know, wrote a lot on the French side. And we had, for you know, for years we had discussions on Masana, how, because as you pointed out, you know, aside from the battle performance, it's also the fact that the French stayed in uh, Torres Vedras lines for way too longer than probably British expected them, right? Yes. And surviving in that devastated area was quite quite an accomplishment in itself. Um, interestingly, and a kind of a, a, a connection to draw is that, uh, you know, these events are taking place in 1810, 1811. And um, soon enough, Russians are facing the French mobilization on their borders. Uh, and as, as I've discussed in my own research, um, on the eve of the 1812 invasion by the French, uh, there are some three dozen uh, memorandums, military memorandums floating in the Russian uh, high command discussing what should we do, how should we respond. So usually most people think about uh, the plan that ultimately became kind of associated with the um, uh, Prussian officer uh, Fool. Uh, but Fool's plan was never formally um, adopted as an official strategy as such. So there were others floating, and many of them, at least a dozen or so that I have seen discussed, uh, they drew inspiration from Wellington's campaigns, directly so. They speak about conducting campaign um, like Wellington does in Peninsula. So the, oh. as, as Kenton was referring to, this is a steady, methodical reduction of the countryside, uh, exchanging space uh, right, for, for time and, and waiting for the opportune moment to, to strike back. And the, the, the subject of my upcoming book, Field Marshal Kutuzov, is, is one of the key proponents of this. Uh, he's followed the campaigns very closely in, in Peninsula. He's, he's read books. He's studied. Unfortunately, I don't have direct kind of a quote from him assessing Wellington. I would have loved for him to have said yeah. something about <laughs> about him, but he died too early, right? Yeah, yeah, that would uh, be Kutuzov died, yeah, 1813. But uh, when it came to this issue of morality, which is quite an interesting issue to raise, because um, Kutuzov is hard, a very strong proponent of what he called little war. And this is no rules kind of... Uh, unleashing the popular fury, conducting flying uh, uh, a, a, a guerrilla war with flying detachments. And on two occasions, Napoleon, uh, as, as we know, sent emissaries to complain about what he uh, said were gross violations of the laws of war. That's the quote from mm. one of his officers who met Kutuzov. And Kutuzov on both occasions uh, laughed these complaints, concerns. He effectively says this is a war. Yeah. Uh, in fact, when Lauriston, uh, the great diplomat, went over to Kutuzov and said that, you know, he cited examples of these Cossacks uh, destroying French detachments, massacring prisoners, burning supplies to deny the French any sustenance. 
And so Loris Dunn says, such a war needs to come an end. And Kutuzov res responds, uh, and I quote, why? We're only just starting, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So this is just yeah. the beginning of it. So I think in terms of as, as what Kenton said, it's easy, it's, it's, it's kind of hard for us to grapple with the issue of morality, but yep. uh, when confronted with the reality of the war, I think mm -hmm. Um, choosing the the violence as a way of ending violence is is a, is, is a morality of its own. Um, so uh, Russians drew significant inspiration from the British operations in in Spain. And of course, war has been ra raging already, already for years mm. in Spain, so there was much to learn. Alex, thank you for that. Phil, can I come to you? Have you got any thoughts on on this little sort of mini debate that we're starting to have here? Yeah, what I expect to be talking about at all. Yeah, it's, uh, I was just thinking that uh, you could say all this really stems from uh, the French policy of sort of living off the land. Uh, they call it a policy. Uh, obviously, in the, in the 1790s, they don't really have a lot of choice because they don't have any commissariat. So it's sort of become a, it's another one of Kenton's myths. The French live off the land. Well, they kind of have to because no one else is feeding them. But uh, so they, they developed this idea of, of, of sort of um, going out into the into the communities and the, the local lo local areas and taking the food that they need from the local population. But it would be the obvious response to try and deny them that, wouldn't it, I think? And uh, throughout all the British accounts of certainly the 1790s campaign, they go on about how, how terrible it is for the local populace. It's always, oh, yes, it's bad for us, but oh, it's always worse for the peasants. And uh, there's this, this, this understanding. So I think. Perhaps there was a, a level of morality that you could say that this beastliness, as it were, is, is a response to, to the French doing it first, if you see what I mean. Although it needs to be pointed out, as you said, Phil, that, um, you know, again, from the, if you look at the campaigns that were uh, waged um, outside Central Europe, outside Northern Italy, outside Austria, Bavaria, Saxony, um, low lands, so this you know low countries are essentially the more of us developed in, um, regions of, of Europe every every army had to do this that living off the land thing yeah uh, reading the accounts of what Russians did in Moldavia or Wallachia are just just hair raising because they had to confiscate entire or destroy entire villages to extract their resources um I was talking to Zach before we started that I'm translating ben Benningson's memoirs of 1806-1807 in Poland. He speaks to a great length of the challenges they had of extracting, of finding enough resources in the impoverished Polish countryside, which again resulted in quite a bit of plundering and pillaging. So it is it is nice when you have uh, a war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in, in the Lombardy, right, kind of, yeah. or, or Austrian countryside, or in Belgium, where yeah, uh, yeah. You, you have uh, prosperous villages close to each other, you don't have to carry yeah. all of it. But in places like Wallachia, or in Port Portugal, I think that is... Uh, is yeah, a, and it's interesting, actually, uh, tying in slightly with what I was going to be talking about, in that, uh, that Mac uh, looked at this living off the land thing and thought, ooh, that's a good idea. And he tries to get the Austrians to do it, but they're hopeless at it because they're all really polite. And they sort of go and knock on the door. And the farmer says, oh no, nothing here. And they go away. <laughs> so uh, by, by, uh, by, by the time uh, Napoleon turns up at Ulm, 
the Austrian army is completely starving because uh, they're absolutely rubbish at living off the land. <laughs> they just don't, they can't bring them, they, they feel, they feel such kinship with the local farmers uh, that they, they, they can't rob them like, uh, like, uh, I don't know the, the Portuguese or the or the or the uh, or the or the French or anybody else would would do that. I don't know. Which actually is it directly uh, causing issues between the coalition partners, uh, since before the war started in 1805, Austria took commitments on supplying Russian army with specific numbers of provisions. But when the uh, Russian troops under Kutuzov reached the Austrian countryside, what they, re what they discovered time and again is that the Austrians could barely supply their own army, not yeah. to mention the Russian army, which meant that the Russian armies were and the troops were starving, which then caused uh, well, some we, we did it incidents. To the too. <laughs> <laughs> we, oh. There was a, a thing uh, when in the Helder campaign in 1799, when they transported... Um, Russian troops from the Baltic mm. states. Uh, there was a, a bit, you know, if you could skimp on the food a bit, they won't notice they're Russians. And all the <laughs> Russian accounts are all like, oh God, they gave us this awful food. This, and by the, by the time the campaign's over and they're on the Isle of Wight, they're so hungry, they were drinking the, the, the lamp, the lamp oil from yeah. the street lamps and putting axle grease from the artillery limbers on, on bread because they're they can't stand the, the rations the British are giving them. It's, it's so disgusting. But it is, it, you think, oh, that's a bit odd, isn't it? And then you read that, oh, it was actually deliberate policy on part of the British government to try and cut back costs a bit by, uh, by feeding the Russians only the lowest garbage that they can find. So, yeah, we did it to them as well. Yeah. Which, again, <laughs> actually uh, spoils the relationship between the Russians and the Indians. Mm. Uh, well, I think it was British. pretty spoiled by then anyway. Exactly. But, uh, exactly. I think it's in direct contrast, though, isn't it, where uh, the British try, not always successfully, to pay in hard currency for whatever they're getting. But we also need to remember that uh, the Portuguese were compensated to a great degree, both generally the, the Portuguese government, but also Portuguese individuals for the, for the loss of windmills and cattle and, and houses and, and so on and so forth. Money was being poured into Portugal. Um, but to, that, that actually kind of testifies to the, you know, the factor that is decisive to the British victory yeah. in, in Napoleonic Wars, its industrial kind of economic strength, because the Russian policy was also to buy the uh, provisions, but they simply didn't have <laughs> more with <laughs> to, to do it. <laughs> and equally, whilst we're on this thing about busting myths and sort of deliberating on, on difficult home truths, let's not pretend that the British system is all that effective you know the oh, no. british policy might not be to live off the land the reality of what the men do Absolutely. is is live oh, off the land yeah, I, when I, they're not getting what they need um resisting the, <laughs> yeah go for it i, I mean i'm deliberately yeah. resisting the crime and punishment yeah because I mean, i've the, done it the, often uh, enough, so, but again falling back on my strengths but the uh, all the uh, the provost's reports from the uh, 1790 campaigns are full of uh, you know oh uh, a butcher from uh, the town of Bruges has come in, and a, a soldiers of the 17th had a, had a lamb out of his window or a pork or whatever. It's, they're full of. They're always there's lists of complaints from the local populace that they've been in nicking stuff, and uh, mm. all the officers are saying, "Oh, it's terrible what our allies are doing." And then the provosts are saying, "Well, actually, it's not just our allies. Uh, we we, we uh, although we are officially paying for all this, but as soon as the soldiers get a moment." Just bear in mind as well that these people are, you know, 
the scum of the air, uh, as, as they were called at the time. Yeah. Oh, I know. Oh, yeah. That's controversial. <laughs> I put some of the speech on yeah. <laughs> Faces have been pulled in response to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah. And certainly the army that went to Flanders in 1794 was described as the worst army that ever, ever left Britain. And it was literally people who were, who were taken out of prisons and things like that. And I think it's Paget who said his lot was so awful, he'd rather hope he could take them into action, kill them all off and get some fresh ones. Which is pretty important to think about your men. Uh, but perhaps a, a reflection of the kind of quality that uh, that we had in the ranks in that in that mm-hmm. campaign. But, but they were people who who, uh, if you left it lying around, they would have it. So uh, yeah, and and there are lots and lots of uh, reported incidents of uh, of them doing just that and sort of you know stabbing ostlers on the road for a, for a mess of pottage and that kind of thing. You know, it's uh, a lot of. Uh, Violence and theft off the battlefield. They were fine on the battlefield, off the battlefield, not so much so. Yeah. I mean, liability. Channeling the violence and theft on the battlefield would surely have been preferable, but you know, that's a that's a conversation. Things like Paderhoff, you know, uh, yeah, they'd be let off the leash. You know, the the, their danders up. They're they're not talking about morals here. These are people who who, you know, not wholly, but there's a certain element of the army. Perhaps the leftovers from the 17, uh, early 1790s, people whose moral compass isn't quite pointing as true north as we we would like to think it did. Yeah, I mean, again, I'll not and go you into know about all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I'm <laughs> deliberately kind of holding back on yes. the let's go and talk about you know Short British attitudes to plunder and and punishment and how we don't yeah. plunder for theft and all the rest of it. Uh, so we don't punish for that. But anyway. Um, you and I at some point need to have a conversation about where you found Provost reports because that's very interesting to me. But we we do need to um, move on. Alex, I'm going to come to you next. Okay. Um, well, um, I was um, delighted to be part of the conference um, and present a, a, a talk on the Russian performance in 1805. Um, and really to look at the Russian decision-making through the prism of the actions of their commander-in-chief, uh, General Mikhail uh, Kutuzov, uh, whose biography, is, as you've mentioned, I just finished and should be um, out in July in the United States and uh, late August in UK. And so what I did is, um, you know, of course, 1805 campaign is probably the most famous of Napoleonic campaigns. Uh, understandably so, right? This is brilliant victories, um, uh, even bigger uh, victory at Austerlitz. That really stuns the contemporaries, the lays, paved the way for, you know, the, the myth uh, that we're all still grappling with, right, of, of Napoleon and, and his military prowess. Um, and of course, there are dozens and dozens of studies on it. But I think one of the problems, and for a variety of reasons, is that um, much that has been written is is is, fra- is francophile or based on francophone sources. Um, so my goal, of, you know, in the last few years, and, and, and with writing this book, was to kind of create a, a more balanced view. Um, not necessarily to challenge the myth, because in 1805, um, the French prowess is on display, but rather to qualify it uh, and to underscore to what a degree 
the uh, French triumphs um, actually owed to their opponents. And that's especially um, clear in, in when it comes to Austerlitz. So my, my subject, right, uh, Kutuzov is a distinguished Russian officer. He has a remarkable career. We usually, you know, people remember him from Tolstoy, either, uh, you know, napping and, on the Evo Austerlitz or eating fried chicken, uh, <laughs> allegedly, <laughs> on the, on the, uh, during the Battle of Vorodino. Um, but his career is truly stunning because it spans five decades. He served in virtually every a branch of the uh, of the army uh, as, in, as an engineer, as an uh, aspiring artillery, as a staff officer. Uh, he personally was responsible for training infantry, grenadier, jagger regiments, formed light cavalry regiments. It, it's just stunning in, it, to to look at at the kind of diversity of his military experiences. And then, of course, in 1805, he's given this command of an army sent to Austria, uh, which is, uh, tr is is the first major command he holds. He commands troops earlier um, to a great success against the Ottomans but, uh, but, and, and the Poles, but this is really the big one for him. And you see, you know, Kutuzov uh, as, a, as a man who, is, who understands... The, the power of, of the French uh, way of war, the strength of it, the, he understands who he's dealing with. He's, he actually is uh, a closet Napoleon, a Napoleon fan, if, if we can use that expression, because he, his letters are full of very high praise for him. When some of his officers uh, in, in post-1805 period uh, tr you know, criticized Napoleon in front of Kutuzov, he would shut them up and would say, you cannot uh, criticize the form, you know, this is called the foremost captains of our age, which is again a, a kind of a, a grudging, but nonetheless great deal of respect for him. And so what, what Kutuzov realizes is that in 1805, uh, that Austrian, by the time he reaches Austrian uh, borders and sees the, the problem, the logistical problems being the foremost, but also uh, once he looks uh, closely to what Austrians plan on doing, he realizes um, that this plan is not going to work. And so uh, uh, he, you know, logist because of logistical and timetable, he arrives, the Russian army, of course, arrives um, already too late to provide full support for the Austrian troops at Ulm. They're already isolated uh, by the time Kutuzov reaches Branau on the border of, of Bavaria. Uh, and when Austrians urge him to push on and, and kind of try to break into Ulm, Kutuzov rationally so and rather smartly decides not to instead pursues his own policy of, of this orderly retreat. Um, what I find interesting is, is this juxtaposition of, of an experienced, uh, capable commander vis-a-vis uh, -vis a young coterie of officers who surrounded the Tsar. Uh, officers who almost none of them had military experience to speak of. Um, so people, these are people from distinguished families who were enrolled in military service at the tender age. One of them as, as young as just a couple of months, month, not even years. And then essentially earning their epaulets 
while playing with toys. So that by the time they are 21, 23, they already are major generals. And so here you have this kind of juxtaposition of, of two centers of authority at the Russian army. One, Tsar, who himself is a young man, never experienced war firsthand, surrounded by these uh, ambitious uh, officers who urge him to, to become the new Alexander by defeating this, you know, uh, Napoleon, confronting and defeating. And then you have Kutuzov, who's surrounded for, by, by battle-hardened officers who understand that the battle with Napoleon will not be easy and certainly not in the wake of these setbacks. And they, they re tried repeatedly uh, to warn Alexander not to fight at Austerlitz. So that's kind of one of those gut-wrenching experiences of reading and following and seeing these men trying in vain to convince the supreme leader, right, the Tsar, that confronting Napoleon on the fields of Austerlitz will not be a, 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 a good decision. And especially in, in late November, early December, since Allied forces are not yet mobilized. Right? If, if the Tsar had waited three, four more weeks, you had the whole Austrian army from Italy coming up, you had reinforcements from Russia coming up, the Allied army would have doubled in size. So then we would have seen how brilliant Napoleon would have been um, uh, in, in, in the fields of Moravia. And yet, it is the Tsar who decides to listen to these brash voices, makes the decision to, to move forward. Uh, and even then, you know, kind of to, to follow this trajectory of it, you, you know, I, I, as you follow Kutuzov and his officers uh, to the, you know, to, to the fog-shrouded uh, plains of Austerlitz, you see them still, on, as, as late as two hours before the start of the battle, trying to convince the Tsar to stop. And so Kutuzov famously wakes up and, uh, uh, from that slumber at the Council of War, which he thought was, was completely useless since the decision was already made. Uh, and since it was the Tsar who had uh, the power to kind of call it off. So later that night, uh, this is uh, around 3 o'clock uh, on December 2nd, so the battle starts on seven at 7 o'clock. So he goes to the uh, marshal of the palace of the, uh, of the Russian Tsar, and he tries to reason with him, saying, hey, the Tsar is not listening to me, maybe he will listen to you. And this marshal of the palace, I mean, Imagine being wake, woken up at 3 o'clock in the morning, right? You're already pissed off. And so he snaps at Kutuzov and says, My job is dealing with soups. Uh, your job is winning battles. <laughs> Go deal with it. <laughs> and so um, Kutuzov kind of retreats back to his, to his quarters, uh, absolutely um, despondent. Uh, and, and he's not the only one, you know, the guy that I wrote another um, kind of work on, uh, the Georgian prince Peter Bagration, probably one of the most capable tactical commanders of this age. When he gets a copy of the plan that was uh, right, drafted by the Austrian staff officers and then approved by the Tsar, his uh, response is, we will be defeated today, <laughs> which, which is a, quite a statement to make going to the battle, right? <laughs> Um, so my chapter, uh, my contribution to this volume explores exactly the other side to show that uh, the level of dysfunction, the level of um, um, kind of uh, misunderstanding or um, willful uh, 
ignorance of the facts on the grounds that really contributed to the battle uh, to the French triumph at Austerlitz. And with Austerlitz, um, uh, you know, the Austerlitz is the beginning of the French imperial rule in Europe. So it is quite an important moment uh, not to be wrong yet. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, again, so many questions that spiral off of this. Thank you for that, Alex. I guess one of the the things to ask in terms is sort of in terms of legacy. Um, does being right about Austerlitz ultimately stand Kutuzov in better stead further down the line because the young pups, if we want a, a nickname for them, are so emphatically proven wrong. And there are so many echoes there of what is happening in, in the British system. Um, I'm sure Phil is sort of almost twitching in terms of flashbacks to the, the Flanders campaign and exactly this kind of thing of a, a cadre of officers who are, you know, commissioned at the you know, six months old and um, go to Eton uh, as lieutenant colonels and, and all the rest of it. Um, so the fascinating parallels there. But does them being proven so emphatically wrong and the scale of the defeat at Austerlitz ultimately strengthen Kutuzov's position further down the line when he's having to advise the Tsar, let's say, in, in 1812, you know, when they're sort of having to have these conversations within higher command and Kutuzov was clearly right at Auslitz. Is that something that he can then lean on and say, look, you didn't listen to me before, listen to me now? You would think so, right? <laughs> you know, humans, uh, no. The, the sad reality is that, no. Um, uh, when Kutuzov returned to Russia, he was uh, disgraced, not allowed to return to St. Petersburg, sent to a province um, where he stayed for two years, kind of in, 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 in disgrace. Then he's given various assignments, which he's, again, uh, time and again, he's like a Cassandra, right? Kind of predicts that this will go, will not work, uh, uh, but um, never pushes hard enough to prevail. And I think that becomes an issue for contemporaries with him, that he might have had the right ideas, but that he was not. And that's a common uh, accusation against him, that he, was, he, had, he lacked the moral fiber, the, the strength of this uh, morality kind of to, to say, to confront the czar, to say to his superior that this is the right way to do it, you have to do it. Now, I always kind of find, I always kind of try to understand, uh, you know, that, that argument because it's hard to stand up to an all-powerful monarch, right, in case of a czar who um, can really make or unmake your entire career and, 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 and your family's fortune. Um, so, you know, so Kutuzov's position where he's not, he's never pushes too hard with, with the Tsar. Again, to go back to Austerlitz, right, as even when the battle was already uh, beginning and, and the, the Allied uh, left flank was attacking the uh, Davos positions in the, in the south, Kutuzov was dragging his feet and not send, committing the center of the uh, Allied army, expecting that there might be a, a counter strike. And so Alexander shows up uh, famously at around nine, uh, nine o'clock with those young pups. And he tells Kutuzov, why are you keeping these troops on top of the Pratsen Heights? And Kutuzov says, well, I'm waiting. Uh, 
And uh, um, Czar snaps at him and says, well, we are not at the parade grounds for you to wait. And Kutuzov then kind of uncharacteristically un responds that that's precisely because we are not on parade grounds that I'm waiting. And then he stops. And that's and he, then he kind of realizes that he probably went too far and tells the Tsar, but if you order, uh, order me, I will move forward. And I think that's kind of a problem, right? It's, it's dealing with the, with the powers, especially with the royal, you know, royal August figures that have so much power. Um, 1812 is a unique th is a new case because Alex doesn't like Kutuzov. Kutuzov has an ambivalent relationship towards the Tsar, uh, but they understand that it's mutually beneficial uh, um, to 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 kind of agree to disagree. So Alex gives Kutuzov unlimited authority. He's appointed supreme commander of the Russian forces. Not just the commander of the army that is Borodin, but commander, supreme commander of the Russian forces, and is given a complete authority to lead the war as he sees fit, except on one condition: that is to conduct no negotiations with the French, which is no condition, <laughs> really. <laughs> Does he need much encouragement on on that score? Judging from what you've said already uh, this evening, I'm guessing he's quite happy to go with this kind of. No, idea it's actually it's a, it becomes an issue, Zach. You would, uh, so. Uh, it becomes an issue because when Napoleon stays in Moscow, you know, he spent, what, 36 days in Moscow, which always bothered me, right? A, a man of Napoleon's talents, kind of, you know, mind, you know, ability to grasp the, the scope of the situation and, and, and critical uh, uh, thinking, should have understood that Moscow uh, um, is, is a useless um, position to, to keep. Which is exactly why kind of Kutuzov, and that's why I think one of the discoveries I, 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 for myself at least I made is that that in 1812 Kutuzov thinks about grand strategy better than Napoleon, who is usually perceived as to be the master of grand strategy. And Kutuzov gives up Moscow for political reasons, right? In you know political military reasons, expecting, and that's there is a brilliant kind of moment in his letters when he says, "I expect." Napoleon to take Moscow and stop because he will then seek political solution to the war. And Kutuzov is all about encouraging Napoleon to think about it. So when Napoleon sends out these overtures to negotiate, even though Tsar specifically told Kutuzov not to cultivate any, any offers, not to even meet with the emissaries, Kutuzov meets with them twice. And he's, you know, Tsar chews him out for it, but Kutuzov has this famous or at least I love that part in his letter when he says that in war you never refuse a political opportunity that presents you, you know, presents itself. So if Napoleon wants to negotiate, I'm gonna negotiate the hell out of it, <laughs> right? Gaining the time, even if I don't mean any anything I, I, I tell him. There is a maxim, isn't there? Never interrupt your enemy whilst they're making a mistake. And... Oh, hold on a second. <laughs> That's that guy <laughs> right there. Um, and it seems that Napoleon gets hoisted on his own, um, yeah. his own, exactly. his own petard. Yeah. Um, wow. I, I could, I could fire questions at you all night, but we we shouldn't do that. Let me open it up to the others. Kenton, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I want to know, Alex, what you think about the idea that Kutuzov was aware of his own limitations, which is why he didn't very often push himself what you were saying earlier about uh, 
not uh, not having the moral fiber to push push his ideas through but was that because he was aware of his own limitations he was aware of the limitations of the czar or the russian army or the political situation what what's your opinion on that i i you know having written this book i have a uh, better appreciation of the man in, in the sense as a savvy uh, operator. Um, he's mm. very well versed in the uh, in the undercurrents at the royal at the imperial court. He, he he's very well connected um, into the wider network. He always is kind of pulling these strings. So he he knows to what degree he can push the uh, push his cause before it becomes too dangerous. Uh, and the reason because he grew up right at, at the at, at, in the environment where again it's a noble dominated environment it's an it's a it's a society where it's based on privilege but also quid pro quo between the nobles connections mm -hmm. networks it, it it's it's not the society like you know like um let's say napoleon wants to cultivate right even even there we, we, of course networking plays an important role but to not to the degree that that the Russian society was, uh, uh, or the upper society was, the nobility was was all intertwined. So he does understand that, um, but he also, uh, he, I think, you know, in the, in the book, I kind of em emphasized the fact that um, he he understands the Russian army very well, the the, mi the mindset of Russian soldier, and he actually is very good at exploiting that both in 1805 and then especially in 1812. Um, but um, it's, it's in dealing with the czar, I think that's, that's where you see usually the, the biggest problem for, uh, or at least the, uh, I see it, the biggest problem for Kutuzov. Um, but again, if we are in his position, would we push hard, right? I mean, we always talk about it within hindsight, right? We, we, we know yeah. what happened and we, I mean, we have 300 years of, of, of benefit. But if we are there standing on the field of Austerlitz, let's say, and Hazard says you got to attack, will you really say no? Uh, mm. Will uh, you know and jeopardize your career, your family fortune, especially in a society like Russian, so so soon after Poles, after you know Poles reforms of you know kind of purging of the army and yeah. uh, heavy-handed uh, dealing with the nobility, um, I don't think um, others would have acted with greater moral fiber in that sense. Maybe they would have uh, approached Tsar in a different way, but Kutuzov never had that closeness with the Tsar like the young pops had, for example, who could maybe sway him. So he was savvy enough to, to know the limitations uh, with, with the Tsar and, and to work within them then? Yes, absolutely. Um, and and he, was, uh, uh, he was very subtle at that. Uh, there is a wonderful quote from one of the contemporaries that said Kutuzov, when he came to court intrigue, was like a worm, like a woodworm that can slowly kind of eat his way through through the uh, through the timber. Uh, and I, I, I found that kind of imagery stark that, you know, here you have this kind of great hero, right? At least that's the myth that we are confronted with, but uh, compared to a woodworm <laughs> who can undermine anyone. <laughs> I love that analogy. I just love it. But but also, I think we're getting a really clear indication of you as a, a master of this material, Alex, which is fantastic. Mm. Phil, Thanks. let me 
hand it over to you. If you've got any questions in relation to this chapter. Oh, well, most of them have sort of pretty much been asked, but uh, could he have won? At all, still it. Two top of one. So if, if we follow what Kutuzov was proposing and we only know a, a very broad kind of general sense of his plan, it would have been uh, a Fabian approach. In fact, interestingly, uh, Kutuzov's nickname was, you know, he's, he has Mikhail is the first name and patronym name is Ilarionovich. Well, he was, for contemporaries, he was known as Fabius Ilarionovich because he was always, um, in earlier campaigns, always proposing a very cautious, methodical kind of approach to the war. He does that in with Turks. And I have a, a lengthy discussion of his brilliant campaign in 1811. Uh, against the Turks, which takes advantage, uh, uh, which which actually kind of sums up his his really approach to war. So I I do think that in 1805, if they had listened to him, Russians would have re retreated further back, waited out for the Archduke Charles to come up with somewhat uh, almost 90,000 men, and that would have tipped the balance. If if nothing else, um, at that time, this extra three four weeks would have gained Russians enough time uh, enough. Kind of given them the window to sway the Prussians. We know that the meeting already took place between Alexander and Frederick William. Frederick William pledged to support the war if Napoleon rejected the, uh, the mediation efforts. And I don't think Napoleon would have accepted mediation in, in December of 1805. So that's another 100 plus thousand Prussians. So it would have completely changed the dynamic of the war, completely. Another what if. <laughs> I mean, that's a fascinating prospect, isn't it? But we'll, we'll start kind of heading down the rabbit hole of counterfactuals if we, if we go there. So <laughs> not for not. the first time tonight, we will move swiftly <laughs> on. place to go here. <laughs> yeah, isn't it just? Uh, Phil, what a, take me through your uh, chapter for this one. Okay, uh, well, for this particular thing, I'm looking at, uh, I looked at General Mack, who's sort of the opposite of Gatutsov in that... Uh, He's famous for being a bit rubbish, really. Um, <laughs> I came at this uh, from uh, the research for my uh, for my uh, last book, uh, Neither Up Nor Down, uh, because the British had a really high opinion of him. And, you know, it was uh, he uh, he starts uh, he's in the Austrian uh, start. He's on the Austrian staff at the beginning of the war. And he has a bit of a falling out with uh, Coburg and uh, particularly Thugut, the Austrian Chancellor, and he gets slung out. And the British are agitating from the point he leaves for him to come back. And it's, it's, all, it's always pretty much, you know, ticker tape parade in London when he's reinstated. They put him on a, on a, on a fast boat and have him, sh you know, he's, he's in the middle of planning a campaign. It's like, oh, no, come and speak to us. Come, come to London. And they, 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 they bring him over to London and all the politicians come around and they fake him and they, they discuss the campaign. Oh, they're very excited to have, have Mac back. I'm like, what, the unfortunate General Mac? So I was, I was a bit, uh, with all these things, there's a bit, a bit of a hook for the historian, isn't they? Oh, they thought he was great. It's like, based on what evidence? And so I sort of, I came at this chapter really from the sort of perspective of, of um, reputation. How is it you can have, a, how, it, how do you get a reputation? How do you lose a reputation? And, uh, you know, so I, 
I didn't really know very much about General Mack or, or anything sort of around him. Uh, so I had a bit of a probe and say it was largely off the back of this, uh, the Flanders campaign. And very interestingly, uh, he, uh, in the second phase of the Flanders campaign in 1794, he um, draws up what is called the plan of destruction. So the, the, the French have become extended uh, around to coin and he's, he gets his maps out and he draws big, uh, big arrows on them and uh, he's going to destroy the French armies. And it all goes horribly wrong, of course. Uh, and uh, one of the interesting things that came out of that, strangely from uh, German sources, was that he was done in. He was, uh, they, they conspired against him that the Austrian high command disliked Mack to such a degree, and the Duke of York, but we won't mention him right now, uh, but they wanted this plan to fail. <laughs> you know, really? Um, there are a couple of accounts that sort of back this up to a degree, uh, although the British generally, uh, the, the, uh, the British uh, adjutant general said, well, you've only got to look at it to say that plan was never <laughs> But um, again, it's a hook. It bring, it draws you in and you, you, you want to know why, how this man got into this position, why everyone hates him and how he gets reinstated. And but he, it's a fascinating story. And was he as bad as everyone says he is, is the other thing. You know, he calls himself the unfortunate General Mack. And, uh, you know, lots of people said very rude things about him, generally after he'd, uh, after he'd um, well, cocked it up, shall we say. But um, and I, I wanted to know why. And certainly when you look at his way of waging for you say, OK, yeah, people say, well, he fought in these widely dispersed columns, you know, converging, you know, the march, march divided, fight united. Well, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Wasn't that what Napoleon did? It's like, okay, so basically this man has been castigated by history for doing pretty much the same thing that the greatest captain, as we mentioned him earlier, of the, of the period was doing as well. So what, what's the difference? Why did it go wrong for him? And why did it work, say, at Austerlitz for Napoleon? Um, and I, I, I just looked into that, really. Uh, I just dug away at it and sort of tried to get to the bottom of, uh, of, of why he became popular and uh, and why it all went wrong for him, really. Um, wow. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'll be honest, I'm still reeling from Plan of Destruction. Oh, right. Um, which, which has a slight air of being on a par with describing the Titanic as unsinkable. Doesn't yep. it? In it's terms right of of drastically <laughs> overselling. You do your own PR. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, talk about overselling something and tempting fate to make mm. it go catastrophically wrong. <laughs> well, Why on was paper, he hate- which is which is how he planned it, he'd got them banged to rights. There was no way they were going to get out of that. He's got. Uh, he had eleven columns converging on this this uh, stranded. They're not even got a commander. Their commander's been, as, as French commanders tended to be at this time, summoned back to Paris to have a little chat with the government about how it was all going. It's not like the, the chats you have in the office when they, they drag you in and say, uh, so, Mr. Ball, how do you think it's all going? It's not like that. No, they're, they're, they're polishing up the guillotine outside. So uh, this was a very serious chat for, for, the, for, the, for the French commander. But, but so they're, they're sort of rudderless and uh, surrounded. And all we've got to do 
is get everyone lined up uh, and attack them all at the same time. But uh, as I say, it works on paper. But he wasn't even looking at his paper very well because they, uh, they, all the columns weren't marching the same distance. Uh, they hadn't taken into account any of the terrain they've got to traverse. And pretty much all of them have got to go across uh, rivers. So uh, cross French held bridges and the French just held them. <laughs> so um, these columns, I think, I think only two of them arrived at their objective. One of which was led by the grand old Duke of York himself. Well done. And he arrives at his objective in, in the town of Tacoin. Uh, it's like, okay, where's everyone else? And uh, can't he sends out his scouts, no sign of any of the others. So uh, he, he, uh, he, um, he sends a message to, uh, to uh, Imperial headquarters where the emperor himself is, uh, is in command, a bit, a bit, a bit like Austerlitz. Uh, it's the Austrian emperor, not the, not the Russian emperor here. And uh, Max there as well. And uh, the Duke says, um, we're a bit extended here. Um, can I pull back? No, 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 that's not the plan. Uh, Clefay needs you to be there. Clefay is advancing from, from the north. He's going again across a river. He's going to meet up with you. You've got, if he turns up, you've gone. The whole plan's gone to put. You stay there. And of course, uh, during the night, the French, um, not being as rudderless as would appear, um, come up with their own plan and they, uh, they give the uh, Duke of York and, and his army a bit of a kicky, uh, <laughs> totally unsupported. And the, uh, the Austrians just stand there and let it happen pretty much. Uh, famously, uh, General Kinski does literally nothing. He can hear it. Uh, the, the, uh, there's a, there's a, an account by a Hessian officer called Ox who um, had served in the American War of Independence and then goes on to fight with the French uh, commanding Hessian troops. And uh, he, uh, he's commanding a Jaeger battalion and he goes off to Kinski and says, um, I've got my orders. We've spent all night, um, he'd spent all night wrapping cartridges. He'd run out of ammunition. So they, they've restocked their ammunition. We're ready to go. And Kinski first, but we won't see him. And he says he's ill. And then he says, uh, Kinski knows what he has to do and doesn't do anything. So the, the implication is that he was told not to do anything. And uh, yeah, which is uh, <laughs> the end of the plan of destruction, shall we say. But uh, the problem with Mac really is for me was that he doesn't learn his lesson. So he's already had several similar sort of battles that he's planned, big sweeping movements, columns coming in. Uh, the next thing they do is they send him to the Neapolitans. Now, students of the Napoleonic Wars will be familiar with the Neapolitan army. Uh, their king said of them, was it dress them in red, dress them in green, doesn't matter, they'll just run away anyway. So they, they were one of the worst armies of the Napoleonic Wars. And uh, as a special treat, uh, for joining the uh, the second coalition, they get Mac. The because uh, he's got this reputation. He's the most scientific. They call him the most scientific officer of his age. He's the best guy we've got. He'll sort you out. So they don't send him any troops. They just send him Mac, and uh, he does the same thing again. Widely dispersed columns. He takes Rome from the French, and before he knows it, yeah, I'm back. Come back, they're, they're, they're all 
they're going part of the, the, the French, do what the French do and concentrate on his widely dispersed columns, beat them in detail. And before he knows it, he's back in Naples. And uh, yeah, uh, the, the Neapolitan nobles were conspiring to murder him. <laughs> so he has to flee to, uh, to, to, to the French camp um, to, to throw himself on the mercy of his enemies. And they say, oh yeah, no, the, you know, parole and so forth. Yes, that's fine. You're no longer a combatant. We'll send you back home. Uh, but he doesn't go home. He, uh, a certain, certain general by the name of Bonaparte uh, nabs him on the way and puts him in prison in Paris. And uh, he has to escape in disguise back to Vienna because nobody wants him. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And in spite of this, his reputation continues intact. He's still the finest general that the Austrians have. He's, he's, he's the most scientific officer in Europe. He'll sort us out. So they put him in charge of the Austrian army in 1805. And uh, he's instituting various reforms uh, in the face of uh, pretty massive conservative opposition. And basically, he's trying to make the Austrian army like, more like the French. But it's never going to be more like the French because they're not French, and uh, they—they—it's—it's it's a conservative institution, the Austrian army, and you can't turn them into uh, into the um, Vive la République people overnight, can you? They're, they're not going to be a, a, a bloodthirsty, howling mob of bayonet-wielding savages uh, like as they claim the French are. Uh, they're going to be uh, Austrians. <laughs> which have their own strengths, all of their own, but, but he, he prefers to try and change them and work with what he's got. Was that the right call, those reforms, though? And this is a demonstration of my ignorance um, and apologies well, well, to listeners. Yes. Uh, um, as I was saying earlier, the bit about living off the land was a massive mistake. Uh, the idea was to, Austrian armies had huge baggage trains. The idea was to cut down these baggage trains so they can move faster. Uh, but he didn't stop the officers from taking their baggage. So they still had their baggage train. The officers still had their baggage, but the soldiers didn't have any food. So that was a bit of a, a bit of a downer. So yeah, it's, it's bad for morale. And the other thing, the downside of living off the land is it's detrimental to the discipline of your troops. Uh, they're out foraging when they should be mounting sentry duty or being ready to respond to any, any thrusts of the enemy. And also it upset the locals. Uh, so, you know, in, in, in one of the reasons, ironically, one of the reasons the Austrians have got rid of their, their light troops that they'd had in droves of these people in the 1790s, Freikorps and, and Pandors of various kinds, Grenzers, uh, they'd, they'd regulated them all because they were aware that they're a liability. You take a load of Croatian Pandors into, into, into Holland, and the Dutch don't like it very much. You know, it upsets the local population wherever you go. And um, that's not good in a coalition. You don't want to upset your, your, uh, your allies. So the Austrians got rid of these troops. And now he's trying to make the rest of the Austrian army a bit more like that. And it, so that was a mistake. It didn't work. That was a mistake. Some of his reforms to the sort of structure of the Austrian army were good. They were good ideas. They were sound. And had they been instituted in time, they might have made a difference to the, to the performance of the Austrian army in that particular campaign. 
but uh, yeah, he was he was up again, and they didn't like him. The problem was he was, uh, as, I, as I say in, in the in the book, he's uh, he's from humble origins. He's even a Protestant, but don't tell anybody that. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the Austrians weren't very keen on these kind of things. And uh, you know he's, he's a Johnny Jumper. He, he's the sharp of the Austrian army. He's, uh, he's he's worked his way up through the ranks. He started off as a cadet in a Cuirassier regiment, and he's got himself a cushy staff posting and uh, got himself noticed. And but the Kaiser likes him, so um, he gets promoted. And these people who the people that Alexander was talking about, who um, you know, they, they, they've had epaulets since, since before they could walk almost. Uh, they're from the oldest families in the empire, you know, they've got titles as long as your arm. They don't want Mac in charge. Who the hell's Mac? Never heard of him. What were his lands? Oh, no, we don't, never, not having him in Yeah, so uh, he wasn't popular. So he's, he's always going to be up against that. Wow. Just, just wow! You've actually covered what was going to be my last. Sorry, question, yeah, I just believed it, haven't I? I, I did. No, I did no, call you. Uh, I haven't yeah. spoken to anyone for about three days. But, uh. <laughs> uh, no, it's great. Let me, because I have nothing else to ask. Because I was going to say, you know, why is he unpopular? Let me throw it open, Alex. What are your thoughts on this? Oh no, um, you know, I, I thank you, Phil, for um, a wonderful discussion. Um, it's easy to to dislike Mac. It's kind of easy to, to hate him because he make in many respects, he makes it easy. But I, I kind of feel bad for him as well. And because you pointed it out that um, he comes from a humbler background. He works tirelessly to get himself through the ranks. And like what we've talked about in Kutuzov, he is the product of of the circumstances, uh, largely ones that Joseph II, the Austrian ruler, created by promoting, kind of encouraging young, talented men to rise through the ranks, when in previous years this might not have been possible. So, as you as you mentioned, uh, his religious and social background, I think, shapes him in that he does need to work harder, but also to prove, right? He needs to prove it repeatedly that he deserves to be there. And uh, having read in uh, his German biographies, and I think uh, the, the one that came out recently by Graham is, is certainly one of the best I've seen. I, I, I think the thing that really strikes me is this guy's ability to convince people that he's cool. Right? Yes, yeah. kind of persuasive power that he has because as you showed Bill, after so many screw-ups <laughs> to come yeah, back exactly. he's, he's still considered to be that yeah uh, uh, napoleon meets him and says uh, this man is nothing he, he's just very very self-confident he thinks he's amazing but <laughs> but, yeah, and, but and that's no what you get exactly from austrian side too that they all talked later on kind of commented that he has amazing power to convince others to kind of accept, right? Sell himself, really. When yeah, yeah. Is... that's what he's doing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and he's he's incredibly brave, and he works immensely hard. I mean, most throughout, most he gets injured uh, in the uh, in the siege of Belgrade mm-hmm. years before. He, he's, he carries per, he's got a permanent head injury. He has to wear a, a special net to keep his head in, almost. Mm-hmm. You know. 
I don't know what it's for. It's, it's commented on that he wears this, this strange hairnet and he has to lie down a lot. And pretty much every, every crucial point, he's ill. You know, he's collapsed. Uh, I think it was the battle. Of, oh, no, I can't remember which battle it was. Uh, one of the earlier ones, Nearwinden, the battle of Nearwinden. He's, he's, he's had to go to bed because he's collapsed through nervous exhaustion. And uh, they wake him up. It's like, Matt, Matt, Coburg's trying to retreat. He's, he's, he's what? How, what's going on? And he's on a horse and he goes out and has a look. And it's like, no, we're winning. What was he talking about? <laughs> Not the retreat. And they say, they, they say that's the pivotal moment. He, he got out of, and he just does this again and again, this energy. He has this energy, and like you say, this, uh, this ability to persuade other people that, uh, and I think that's why the British like him. Because they're used to these reserved, uh, restrained Austrian officers who don't really like, you know, they like to besiege places, basically. Uh, we'll, we'll set up a perimeter. They're very good at besieging places. Uh, but Max talking about, oh, we're going to be Paris by, by Tuesday. You know, it's a, uh, they like this. <laughs> they appeal. I, I think uh, Fortescue, uh, John Fortescue, the, 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 the great British author, uh, he has a wonderful passage when he says that, uh, uh, you know, kind of talking about the confidence of, of Mac, that Mac never made an allowance for possible failure for any of his combinations. But no. it, it testifies to that self-confidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whatever I do, it, it's, it's going to be right. Yeah. <laughs> Even it, it, after repeated failures. <laughs> yeah. Um, currently, I'm looking at uh, British strategy and amphibious operations. And uh, if you know the character of the British government at the time, they're exactly the same. <laughs> you know, oh, of course, we can take the whole West Indies with 7,000 men. Yeah, just get them on a boat. Yeah, we're fine. Yeah. Oh, we'll feed them. Uh, worry about that when they get there. But, uh, you know, <laughs> it's the same mentality that, oh, they invade the Netherlands in 1799. Uh, the British are already talking about what they're going to do with those men next. There's no possibility that they're going to fail. There's no possibility that any of them are going to die. Uh, there's no possibility you might have to garrison anything either. But, <laughs> well, we've got those 30,000. We'll send them uh, to Belgium next. That'll be, uh, that'll be... And Mackie's the same. This, this, this endless confidence in, in how well everything's going. One of, my favorite, he's winning. <laughs> one of my favorite moments uh, is when uh, Mac, after after Um, uh, Napoleon releases him, he's returning home, uh, he's returning to Vienna. And on the way, he stops and sees Kutuzov. And Kutuzov asks, you know, that famous scene from Tolstoy and, you know, from other places, kind of, you know, the, oh, this is unfortunate, Mac and all. But Kutuzov senses that something, you know, Mac is not telling him the full story. So what he does is they sit in the room and Kutuzov brings drinks. And he sits down and like, go ahead, drink, drink. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and Mac, with, you know, kind of, he always imagine his bandaged head, right, banged yeah. up, nervous, kind of after what he's gone through. So he chucks down a pint or two. And Kutuzov, in his in letter, and Kutuzov... Uh, Describes that after a couple of shots, uh, Mac kind of relaxes and he starts telling what you know what happened at Um. And at one point in this long conversation, he just in passing mentioned, "And oh, I met Napoleon and he offered Austria a separate peace to splinter the coalition." 
And Kutilo is like, oh, hold on a second. <laughs> hold on a what did you say? <laughs> They're like, here, another glass, drink it. <laughs> and there is another Austrian officer there, Mervelt. And Mervelt is standing there, and Kutuzov says, he's making grimaces to trying to shut up Mac, not to reveal more information. <laughs> and I like this, this human, human direction, that's right, shut it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I thought it was just on this podcast that we had yeah. scenes of utter anarchy. <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Kenton, well, save us. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think I can. I think we're all far beyond saving. But uh, I think just listening to the, to the discussion, we, we keep coming back to the personalities, don't we? We keep coming back to the characteristics of the commanders. And it sounds like Mac was promoted beyond his own capability, but not beyond his confidence in his capability. Would that be a fair summing up of, of him as a personality? Yes, I think so. I think he, he, he was an excellent staff officer, I yeah. think. Um, he could have been the Austrian Berthier, uh, but putting him in charge of directing strategy. I mean, he wasn't officially in charge at any point. That's the that's the, that's the other <laughs> other thing. Uh, that, I mean, uh, uh, oh, he isn't in charge. It's uh, one of the archdukes uh, who hates him <laughs> and doesn't take any notice. So he could walk away and say, "Well, look, look, I wasn't responsible for that." That's oh no, no, but they they, they, they tell him he is. Oh. <laughs> Well, yeah. You're not in charge, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, he's, he's, yeah. Um, he clearly has some ability in mm. some areas, but he's probably not the man to have in charge, I think, is, is, the, uh, is right. the idea. And, and yeah. Uh, yeah, teach him to read a map properly might have been. Uh, <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> wow. Just wow, what a discussion. Um, thank you, all three of you, Kenton, Alex, Phil, for such uh, not only an interesting discussion, but sometimes you, you get episodes where you just get to laugh a lot alongside it all. And this has definitely been one of those. Uh, I've absolutely loved it. We've gone from kind of deep and probing questions about morality through to just <laughs> hilarity and, you know, scenes of people getting drunk and letting slip. <laughs> really important state secrets so <laughs> you get it all here on the napoleonicist folks but there is an important reason why we are here which is to publicize this book that you've contributed these great volumes these great chapters to folks head over to the hellion website do not i beg you go to amazon in order to give all of the profits to jeff bezos who instantly takes that money and transforms it through magic into rocket fuel this is my pet <laughs> hatred I have ranted about it many times in the past and I make no apology for doing so again because Hellion is a small and independent company that could really do with your custom. And the crucial thing is that companies like Amazon, don't get me wrong, are great in terms of convenience, but there's this important point that they have the ability to, they, they need less in terms of overheads. So they have this ability to undercut the, the smaller companies, which then means that companies like Hellion get a much smaller proportion of the profits that they actually need, particularly considering the difficult times that these, these companies have been through. And also, really importantly, think about the person who edited this volume, Rob Griffith, who unfortunately couldn't join us this evening, but does a brilliant job and did a brilliant job on this one. 
he, as the editor, should be entitled to a very small proportion of the, <laughs> the takings from this. And it is a small proportion within, within history books. It's not unique to Hellion. It's just the, the system and how it works. If you go to Amazon, he sees even less of those very small takings. So, folks, go support the people who make these books happen, uh, whether it be the companies, whether it be the editors and the authors. And I urge you, go direct to the companies if you can afford to do so. Obviously, there's a caveat. If you can't afford to, to do it and Amazon's the only way that you can buy a volume, then sure, go buy the volume because the, the fundamental point is we want people to read this research, right? But if you can, if you've got the money to go direct to the companies, please do, because it, you'd be amazed at how much difference your customer actually genuinely makes. Um, rant over, Bravo. full details. Um, it's on the Hellion Company website, hellion.co.uk. It is called Armies and Enemies of Napoleon. It's the proceedings of the 2021 Hellion from Reason to Revolution conference. There is going to be a 2022 conference, which I believe is focusing on sea power, um, not least because I nabbed the potential topic of sieges for a separate volume. Um, it's hashtag sorry, not sorry. But it will be a great conference. Again, check their website. There will be details of how you can attend. They're very good at, you know, kind of the publicity side of things. It may end up being online. Um, so, you know, keep an eye out for that. That will be fantastic. But rants aside, Kenton, Alex, Phil, thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank you for sharing your research. And I hope to see you again on this podcast very, very soon. Thanks for having us. Thank you Pleasure. so much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Before you go, folks, all the usual things. Remember to like and subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can find me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. A huge thank you as ever to my Patreon supporters. It is their support that keeps this podcast going. If you're interested in contributing to the show, you can find out more from the link in the description. Prices start from £1 a month, and you get all kinds of perks from discount codes on um, pen and sword books, which means you actually quite rapidly end up regaining some of the money that you invest in the show, all the way through to voting rights, shout-outs in episodes, and even one-to-one -one meetings with me. If a regular subscription isn't your thing, which, believe me, I completely understand, you can leave one-off tips via Ko-fi. Again, the link is in the description. And all the money gets reinvested into producing more content further down the line, and I have a big project in mind involving footage from battlefields that could potentially be... Uh, a really engaging, exciting project if I can bring the money together to make it happen. A big thank you as ever to my Emperor-level patrons Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser and Todd and Led Campbell, my Marshall patrons Matt Bone and Marcus Cribb, my Commander patrons John Haynes, Gur Brown, Liam Telfer, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meakin and Michael Guest, my Mentioned in Dispatches Plus patron Noah Fink, and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Miles Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice de Graaf, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tapner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coathlin, Mark Trowbridge, and Stephen Coulson. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Yeah.